This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by Acts 29 with an invitation to their 2024 Next Conference happening April 15th through the 17th in Dallas, Texas. You don't want to miss this great lineup of speakers, including Sam Albury, Matt Chandler, Brian Loritz, John Piper, and more. The Next Conference will equip and encourage church planters and church leaders of all types for church ministry. To learn more and register for Next, visit acts29.com slash next. TGC podcast listeners will receive a special discount of $20 off registration prices by using the code TGC. Again, visit acts29.com slash next. That's acts29.com slash next. This episode of TGC Podcast is brought to you by Crossway. The magnificent story of God's redemptive work through Christ comes alive in a fresh way with the ESV Audio Bible, now available with new voices, including Conrad and Bayway, Jackie Hill Perry, and Ray Ortland. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or visit esv.org to learn more about these and other new audio features. This episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast is sponsored by Baker Books, presenting Assured by Greg Gilbert, a book on discovering grace, letting go of guilt, and resting in your salvation. Learn more at bakerbookhouse.com. This is the Gospel Coalition podcast, where we seek to renew the contemporary church in the ancient gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm your host, Colin Hansen. Jesus said many things that are hard to hear. He issued many commands that are hard to obey. He taught many parables that are hard to understand. But maybe the most powerful, the most counterintuitive word he has for us today comes in Matthew 10:39, where he says this, Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So that means when we're lost, we're found. A truth that only makes sense in the gospel. That's the theme of a new book I've edited for the Gospel Coalition. It's called Lost and Found, How Jesus Helped Us Discover Our True Selves. It's a collection of testimonial essays from authors such as Johnny Erickson Tata, Sam Alberry, Kina Aragon, Jason Cook, Bernard Howard, and many others. And it includes the testimony of my guest today on the Gospel Coalition podcast. Christopher Yuan is probably best known for his book, Out of a Far Country, but he's also written a new book called Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, one that I also strongly commend to you. So Christopher joins me on the Gospel Coalition podcast to talk about the mystery of life, the apologetic of love, the challenge of parenting, and more. Christopher, thanks for joining me on the Gospel Coalition podcast. Thanks for having me on, Colin. Well, Christopher, let's just start out with this. When and how did you realize you were lost? Hmm. Well, you know, the funny thing is, I, I would say from probably many people, um, you're lost and you don't know it. <laughs> so it took many years for me to realize my my condition before a holy God, uh, my need for someone to stand in my place to be righteous because I couldn't. When you don't know you're lost, you don't know you need God's grace. <laughs> and it was a long, long, arduous, tough path that... That, that that brought me to that point. Was there a specific culmination moment where there was a sense of despair, or was it a dawning realization over the course of time? What did that look like for you? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, conversion is so different from for many people, and and for me, it was it was pretty gradual. So so my story was um, I wasn't raised in a Christian home. 
Um, so didn't have any of that background uh, or understanding that that we are sinners. So from a young age, I wrestled with not only just identity, who am I? Being Chinese, uh, my my parents came here to the U.S. for graduate school, and um, uh, so wrestled with with that question, who am I? And p- compounded by that was the fact that I experienced attractions to the same sex. So with all that confusion and being born in 1970 and being raised in the 70s and 80s, sexuality was not something to talk that, that was talked about. Um, people were not openly gay. Uh, so that, that, that made it even more difficult for me. But, so I wrestled with that secretly for, for many years, most of my childhood, on through high school, college. And um, it wasn't until I was in my early 20s that I came out of the closet. I was living in Louisville, Kentucky, pursuing my doctorate of dentistry there at University of Louisville. And, and there I, I came out of the closet and I broke the news to my parents. Um, and you know what's so amazing is how God used that crisis to bring me to faith. Initially, my mother could not accept it. And, and this, is, this is what's so really neat about my story is, you know, you hear the narrative today that evangelical conservative Christians who follow scripture cannot are, and are unable to love their gay children, and they reject them. But Colin, I had the exact opposite experience. My parents rejected me while they were unbelievers um, as a gay man, and it wasn't until my parents became Christian that they loved me as God loves us. While we were powerless, while we were sinners, while we were his enemies, he, st- he still loved us. So it's just so amazing how the gospel can so radically transform um, not only ourselves, but how we view others as as well. So I thought my parents had lost their minds, <laughs> lost their marbles, and wanted nothing to do with their Christianity. Um, and I was living in Louisville and pursuing my doctrine in dentistry, but also partying. Uh, I involved, got involved in drugs, also some drug dealing, was eventually expelled from dental school, moved to Atlanta. I kept doing what I knew how to do best at that time, sell drugs. Um, eventually I was arrested. So this whole time my parents were praying for me. They had no clue the depth of, you know, my kind of rebellion and doing drugs, but they knew that I needed to know Christ above, above anything else. They, and they prayed for that, that miracle that, that God would turn this hardened heart, uh, into a, a broken heart. That answer to prayer came with a bang on my door and I was arrested by uh, the federal drug enforcement agents and um, found myself in, in federal prison, um, never thinking that I would end up there. Uh, so that was really the, the beginning of my journey of recognizing my lostness and um, just being confronted with God's word. I found a Bible in the trash can of all things. It was a Gideon's New Testament, began reading it, and um, it really revealed the my my rebellion against a holy god against the government against my parents um i also got some news that i was hiv positive and and it's and god uses crises uh to get our attention and and to help us realize our need for him so it was there in prison that i recognized my need for christ uh, but also more importantly this journey on sexuality because i at first i thought i could have both i thought i could have i could be gay and I could have God as well. But as I was again confronted with God's, God's truth from Scripture, um, one of the first things that I recognize that I think is so important for us 
as Christians to also realize is how sexuality has been conflated with personhood. And my whole world was gay. Everything about me was gay. My friends were gay. Um, I lived in an apartment complex that was 90, 95% gay men. Went to a gay Kroger, gay gym. So the world around me and, and, and my culture was telling me, you are gay. This is who you are. But what I realized was that that is the wrong identity. And, and when we put our identity in the wrong thing, false thinking comes, false behavior, false teaching. <clears throat> and as Christians, we often want to approach our gay friends with, well, this is sinful behavior, when I think we need to step back and talk about who are we? We're created in God's image. That's, that image, unfortunately, you know, has been distorted by the fall. And Christ came to redeem us. Uh, and restore that image. And uh, so that was really a foundational for me in my journey as a Christian, uh, that identity piece. So you, you mentioned this question of identity, which is so incredibly pervasive. We're often told that we'll find ourselves and that identity by looking inside mm -hmm. ourselves That's for right. that meaning and purpose and identity. What did that look like for you when you looked inside yourself to discover that identity? Or did you not do that? Did you just look to your community for that? Yeah, you know, it was, it really was both. Because it's been so ingrained in, in from education, if, if you go to public schools and you go to um, a secular state university, uh, that's, it's really a given that uh, this is who you are. Uh, I am gay. I am straight. And now there's uh, just a plethora of choices for us to identify by. Um, and 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 this is also where I struggle with people who might continue as Christians to say I'm a, I'm a gay Christian. I'm a gay celibate Christian. I mean, just the fact that you have to use another modifier to modify the the first modifier, I think, reveals that it could be problematic. But also um, by using these modifiers. It gives a signal that uh, that you connect more with that community uh, than, or just as much as that community as with the Christian community, which is the family of God. Um, and and I and I I do personally find that problematic. Let me talk about one of the other popular comments, sentiments that you hear that you you, know, you often hear. So one of them we just discussed right there that you find yourself by looking inside yourself for meaning and purpose mm. and identity. And then that is often then affirmed and externalized within a community that shares that identity. Just what you mm -hmm. described right there. Um, but there's another common perspective that I wonder if you could help us to understand how to talk about with our neighbors and how to understand ourselves. Justice Anthony Kennedy of the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court, first gave us this phrase in 1992. Quote, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. End quote. He and the majority mm. on the Supreme Court used that reasoning to uphold legal abortion in 1992, overturn bans on sodomy a decade later, and ultimately in Obergefell v. Hodges mandate gay marriage across the country. And I wonder, just that, that phrase, that concept right there, how do we explain to friends, to family, to neighbors, why that view this, this, this sense that the heart of liberty is the right of each person to define our own concept of existence, meaning, the universe, and the mystery of life. How do we explain that that concept simply can't deliver on its promises? Well, I think it gets to the question of, of essence. 
it, it, this truly is an ontological question. Who are we? Really at the core, uh, not, and, and I don't want to confuse it with what we do, because I would say many people, if, if you were to ask people on the street, even people in, in, in our own churches, who are you? Probably one of the first things people would say, like if it, maybe if it's a mother, she would say, I'm a mother. Um, or, uh, you know, maybe someone, they will say it's their job, you know, I'm a doctor, I'm a nurse. And I, I, I would argue that many of these things that, that we would identify is, I don't know if that's really essential of who we are. It's, it's aspects, it's, it's part of our experience and, and of our past, uh, things that we might do. Uh, but but it really gets to it's it's a metaphysical question that comes down to um, who are we at the core of you know of our being, and scripture has an answer for that. And you know, beginning in Genesis, Genesis one twenty seven, we're created in God's image, and that sets us apart from all of creation. And and that is not that essential aspect is not something that we choose or we figure out or that we need to create. That's a lot of pressure for us to put on ourselves uh, that I need to find purpose in my life. I need to find who I am. I need to find, uh, you know, the uh, what is, you know, uh, uh, the real concept of existence for myself um, when God has really provided that for us uh, in Scripture and, and pointed us to Christ who is uh, the perfect image of God uh, for us to put our faith in um, and to uh, to live our lives for. We've discussed a few different ideas here and lines of argumentation, ways to be able to engage in dialogue with neighbors. But I wonder, were you one to Christ by any particular arguments, or mm. perhaps were there particular acts of love that compelled mm. you? How did how did that work out in your own experience? But when it came down to it for me, it wasn't simple arguments or truth that, that brought me to faith. It really was the, the, the patient and persistent witness of my parents who did not really bring up much truth. It, they lived it. Uh, and I knew uh, their belief. I, I knew that they believed in um, a God, they be- I knew that they believed in Jesus Christ. I knew their what they believed when it comes to sexual morality, uh, but they lived that first, and they exemplified the love of Christ and that unconditional love to me. Um, that you know, unconditional love didn't mean unconditional approval of my behavior and the way I lived. Uh, but it, it was hard because I rejected that. I wanted them to reject me because then it would just be much easier for me to then reject them, and I and I couldn't. But it was uh, their their persistent love that they before they preached the gospel, they lived the gospel, and and I was able to see um, the gospel played out in their lives as they were radically changed. My parents were uh, were changed. They. Uh, for example, uh, just in their own personal lives, uh, they were themselves. Their their marriage was quite broken. Um, on the outside, things looked good, but as as I knew from home life, uh, things weren't good on the Western Front, and 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 things were uh, very much. It was a it was a battleground. Just to see how they had changed, 
it was the reality of the gospel in their own lives. And it was tangible for me that I saw that. But of course, I still rejected it being, you know, just typical uh, young adult, uh, you know, that was imbibing in postmodernity. I thought, well, that's good for you, but not for me, that this is my truth that I need to create. And, you know, like Justice Kennedy says, you know, I, I, need, I, I have the liberty to, to, to choose and, and that the concept of my own existence. And, and then I did. Um, so I guess a, a good lesson for us is sometimes when things seem hopeless, which they were for me, um, you just continue to faithfully live the gospel, uh, be transformed, experience daily renewal. And, and it was my parents, they, they didn't need to preach at me. They just exuded, uh, you know, God's, God's reality, his grace, uh, and, and, and what, what Christ meant to them. Yeah. Well, let's speak to Christian parents there and speaking out of that experience that you've had with your own parents, mm. there's just incredible pressure right now on Christian parents, parents of all beliefs to affirm their children, even at young ages when they live at home, if they want to transition genders or pursue romantic partners of the same sex, they're told the parents are that if they don't approve this, they'll risk losing a relationship with them, with their kids, or even worse, they may end up hurting their children to the point that, they're, that their children will turn to self-harm, or we've even some, seen some cases where the courts have removed children from their parents in those situations. So how do you counsel parents trying to navigate this new normal? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's really, um, it, it's, it's becoming more and more of a challenge to be a parent today, <laughs> um, especially in our culture, especially in a school system that often views parents as the problem and not part of the answer. Uh, too often, if uh, parents are viewed to be a hindrance. Parents are viewed to be ignorant, um, and the government and the schools need to come in to educate parents um, on how to raise their own children. So it's 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 becoming much much more, uh, and, and it's going to intensify. I believe. I think parents need to really understand uh, what love looks like. I I. I believe there is so much confusion today about what is love. Uh, even in the gay community, you hear the mantra, love is love. But I argue, what is what does that love look like? Because not all love is equivalent, or nor does it look the same. I believe that what makes love look different is that it, what, what truth it is grounded in. Love isn't standing on its, it can't stand on its own. Love always stands on a foundation of truth on, on some ground, which is, would be world, our worldview. Our worldview shapes our love. And without knowing what is our worldview or without addressing that worldview, uh, this is why love looks quite different. I mean, even, uh, you know, even the, uh, the angry uh, maybe pastor standing at the corner yelling at, at those in the gay community or, you know, the gay pride parades, turn or burn, um, they might 
I bet you they will argue that they were they're doing it out of love. I think maybe sometimes maybe a little bit of a misguided understanding of love. Uh, but I don't think love is the question. But but the question is what does love look like? And so for a parent who wants to love their children, we need to realize that love does not mean um, acceptance of whatever our children do or whatever they think. We we accept our children because of who they are, that they are created in God's image. They are our children, but that doesn't mean that we need to approve and accept of everything that they want to do or they are doing. Um, and, and really making the focus um, not upon their rebellious behavior, whatever it is, whether they are um, being uh, not honoring or whether maybe it's an uh, older child in, involved in drugs, whatever it is, um, or maybe if, if it's a child who's wrestling with their sexuality, that, that those really aren't the core issues. What the core issue is, have their, they put their faith in Christ, and is their faith their anchor? Let me follow up. Last question here. Um, you mentioned that we all have to make that decision. Are we going to trust our faith in Christ? Or are we going to follow our desires? And I think specifically, especially when you're talking about same-sex attraction, it sounds like you're trying to help people to understand that by following Christ, your same-sex attraction, those desires specifically are not necessarily going to change. They may change, but they're not necessarily going to change. But I wonder... I think in many ways, that's that's going to be a decision that a lot of people, when they face that, they're just going to say, I tell you what, I mean, my faith in Christ is abstract, but my desires are ever-present. I'm going to follow my desires there. Help us to understand, in a broader context of discipleship, how, as we follow Christ, our desires for Him do fan into flame. They do grow there. So maybe those same-sex attraction desires, they don't necessarily change. But that disposition toward loving God and loving the things of God, that does change. The more we taste it, the more we want mm-hmm. of it. Yes. Yeah, very much so. So, um, you know, this, <clears throat> I, I, I always want to put uh, our conversation about human sexuality and same-sex attractions in the context of theological anthropology, because we we cannot understand human sexuality without beginning with theological anthropology. We're created in God's image, but also the reality of uh, the doctrine of sin. We uh, what original sin, the consequence of the sin of Adam and Eve and the fall, um, and how how that has not only made us guilty. Um, uh, in Adam, but also we now have a sin nature. And um, so w- when people ask, you know, well, do you still experience attraction toward the same sex? Um, I-, I-, I want to first help people understand, well, as a Christian, will we, will we no longer be tempted with sin? I think that's an important question for us to then, it- that helps it uh, put things uh, in context of, of what really is occurring at conversion. We are set free from the bondage of sin, but that doesn't mean the eradication of any possibility of being tempted. So experiencing 
the temptations toward the same sex, that might not go away, but this is the change. So this is how we define change, because oftentimes we think change is being eradication, no longer experiencing any temptations. But change, like you say, Colin, once you put your faith in Christ, there will be a change. Um, our desire for Christ should grow and amplify and flourish and deepen. Uh, that doesn't mean then that there won't any be struggle with our flesh anymore. That's going to be the constant Romans 7, that, that this constant battle between our flesh and the spirit is real in the believer. Uh, John Owen talks so much about indwelling sin. You know, where it's the reality of not just talking about original sin and then not just talking about sinful behavior, but the battle that we all have um, and, and how Paul talks about that we need to put to death the deeds of the flesh. That isn't just a one-time deal, uh, but it is a constant real battle. But, but also, with that being said, that doesn't mean that it is going to be like a moment-to-moment, every kind of you know, day-of-your-life struggle um, there's going to be ups and downs. Uh, I, I use example for for most men. Uh, they don't experience attraction to the same sex. However, for most men, they have opposite sex attractions, and so that reality, uh, that predisposition, that that propensity means that uh, though they may be married, that that the, the desires for their wife are desires uh, that are, are pointed in a direction that God would bless. However, the desires and the temptations that men might experience toward other women who are not their wife, that isn't something that is experienced every moment, every second of the day. I love what John Piper said uh, about the reality of understanding grace, that grace is not simply forgiveness of sins, which we all, we all get, we all grasp and celebrate, but it's not simply the forgiveness of sin, but it's the ability to sin no more. So grace is not only pardon, it's power. If we really recognize that on a daily basis and recognize that we have an advocate, we have someone who has been in our shoes, who is tempted in every way, um, but was without sin, that he walks with us and he he really struggled to the end, um, that that is the one who is, who is fighting in our place and empowering us to sin no more. Um, that is That's a great victory right there. Amen. You'll get a lot more of this from my guest, Christopher Yuan, in his new book, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel. Also, check out his chapter in our book together called Lost and Found, How Jesus Helped Us Discover Our True Selves. Christopher, thank you for joining me on the Gospel Coalition podcast. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Gospel Coalition podcast. For more gospel-centered resources, visit thegospelcoalition.org. Support for this podcast comes from listeners like you. Learn more and join us at tgc.org slash donate.